Okay, here we are. Screen hit Miami. On a chilly Miami week. Yes. 68 degrees. Brr. <laughs> Break out those windbreakers, folks. Yep. Furs. Welcome to Miami winter. It did get kind of chilly, though. It was. We took, yeah. 50, it went down to the 50s. 50s. 51. Right. I Which is, you know, summer from my brother that lives outside of Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian friends up there going, oh, that's cold, eh? Ah, perfect. Perf- perfect for our Canadian guest day. <laughs> nice little dip in the pool, eh? Perfect. <laughs> that is a, that is a good segue into our guest. Our special guest. You know what? I did that completely unintentionally. No, you didn't. I swear. I, it's written down right here. That was completely... <laughs> Our script. You went off script. That I totally went off script, but ironically, it all makes sense. Yes, our yeah. guest today is the executive director of the Miami Film Festival. Mr. A- Jay LaPlante. Jay LaPlante, yes, who is Canadian and is now a, a Miami resident. He actually said he's lived in Miami longer than he lived in Canada. Yes, he is. He is from our people now. <laughs> he is a people. <laughs> he doesn't use turn signals. He drinks a lot of Cuban coffee and he yells a lot with his hands. He definitely said, well, we saw him <laughs> use his hands a lot. And he no. definitely said the, the Cuban coffee part. Yes, so. he's very chill. But we, we love Jay and we can't wait to get into this amazing interview of all the work that he's done going, I think, into his 10th year as the director of the Miami Film Festival. And 10 years Miami Media and Film Market. Everybody's on 10. That's right. Next year, we will also be celebrating our 10th. So think the planets are aligning. Yes. Just like this interview aligned perfectly. Oh, yes. I'm excited. And I really think that there's so much going on. I'm beyond excited. We always talk a little bit about the box office. Uh, This past weekend saw some changes. Big changes. Yes. Tanking. Tankful. Right. Tank full. But one film revved its engines and rode its way into first. Full tank. Full of tank. gas. Ford versus Ferrari. Woo! I, as I think I've mentioned before, huge Ford fan. Love the Mustangs. Love Carroll Shelby and the passion he had for, for automobiles. And this film is an Oscar contender. Oh, yeah. Performances are stellar. Great direction. You know, I've heard it's really a tour de force. I haven't seen the film yet, but it's really exciting to see those actors going at it. And a film that, again, has been in development for quite a long time. You know, it's really had a long gestation period. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. Films, there's films that are 20 years in development. You know, Mm -hmm. just trying to get it done. It's a Herculean effort, especially now to get a feature film done. Oh, yeah. Especially within the studio system where more and more they're banking on these franchises. They're taking very minimal chances on uh, original stories, even those based on true events or real life. Uh, But it it seems to me that, yeah, it's getting harder to get those kind of films made, which used to be, you know, the staple of the Hollywood, these sort of mid-range action drama original stories sometimes based on true life or true events gangster films yeah so it's uh you know it's it's interesting to see how the industry is evolving and you know this is more the work now of the indie filmmaker than the studio system it's been a big shift yeah and speaking of tanking an action flick tanked yes female driven action film you know uh something we have heard before it's a reboot of charlie's angels yeah the mick g versions right did do well those did well about 15 years ago 20 years ago yeah even more yeah those those did well but unfortunately this version 
uh, did not do so well, underperforming at the box office. So you had Ford versus Ferrari coming in first with 31 million in North America, followed by uh, yeah Charlie's Angels bringing in a very disappointing 8.6 million on over 3,400 screens. Yeah, that mm. is. Uh, but you never know, you know. I mean, this environment. We had Joker that finally hit a billion. Yes. Oh, finally. That. What am I saying? Finally. finally. <laughs> it hit a billion on a... Took 60- you long enough. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, but on a $60 million budget. I mean, that's something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's something that, you know, and I think there is a place for original type stories, even though obviously based on a very super popular character. But when... The studio system allows its filmmakers to take creative risks, even if they give them a half the budget. Yeah. Let them take the chance. Let them take the shot, because that's the only way we're going to discover new things. That shot was a home run. That was a grand salami. All the way out into the parking lot. That was that was a monster dong. And it's still going. It's not done. It's still in theaters. Yeah, no, it's so. still it's it's definitely it's it's going to reap all the benefits for sure and a great sort of impulse going into first of all the launch of HBO Max next spring. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's going to be part of the initial offering there and also, you know, now all the buzz about the Batman and the casting process there and what that's going to be and maybe there'll be a sequel to that maybe this version of the Joker may make an appearance maybe there'll be a sequel to the Joker I don't know I do know Zoe Kravitz is going to play Catwoman that looks awesome very happy with that casting yes yes Yes. Uh so it's going to be that's going to be an exciting thrill ride another sort of revamping of the story and and we'll see see kind of where it goes Um, yeah but you know we were just talking about reboots mm redoing intellectual property and this is a big story and I saw this in Hollywood Reporter last month which is the digital actor this is something and it's a trend that's going to continue in Gemini Man they de-aged Will Smith but not only did they de-age him they used a lot of that process to recreate of movements and facial expressions and so it's already moving down the line creating an entire digital actor but they used a lot of that same process in the Irishman right the whole de-aging process and and again that is only a minor step towards what is potentially possible I know uh our our past guest Prashant Shah mentioned where that could potentially full go. digital actors. He didn't mention it. He said it's going to happen. Right. It's only a matter of time. But I think Prashant is privy on some information uh. that he just did not. You know, maybe sign some NDAs. We don't know. I know. You, I know you're looking like sick about this. I'm but. terrified. I mean, it, look, and I appreciate us being able to hang on to some of the greatest actors of the 20th century, some of the greatest performers, and 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 the types that have we've grown up with. But again, it just to me, what scares me is this idea that we're spending less time and energy and resources on discovering something new, a new face, a new actor. Obviously, there that's always going to be part of it, but it almost feels like all these fail safes we're putting into Hollywood now, this sort of risk averse mentality that Scorsese also alluded to, you know, even though he did use the de aging, but still. <laughs> We'll give him a pass on that one. It's it's not it's it to me it's just it, it, the whole lifeblood of the creative industry. This idea of of newness and freshness and rediscovering and and giving you know unknown talent a chance. It just feels like this is working against that. But the thing is, there's an ebb and flow, so you, you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. Right. I mean, look at this Charlie's Angels. Sure, it didn't work. 
Mm. But there is something that is in the works. James Dean's fourth movie. Mm-hmm. And they are using an entire digital representation of James Dean. Right. That's something. Escapist magazine. CGI James Dean shows an actor's brand is more important than the actor. Wow. That's something. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. And, and you know, actors have to worry about that so much. And so it's just really it's one of these things that now what I'm trying to get at is that I, I think that, yes, there could be room for using technology to explore things. But, you know, I just think that sometimes we have to also have a conscience and understand when we're taking things too far. Yeah. But you know what? All I can say is it's going to happen. Right. And I'm going to read this. And this is from. The Hollywood Reporter. CMG Worldwide, a management consulting company known for its roster of celebrity clients and intellectual property licenses and content creation studio, Observe Media, are merging to form Worldwide XR. Worldwide XR will bring digital humans to traditional film and other mediums and platforms through CGI restoration. Mm -hmm. So just imagine an intellectual property company Right. Meeting with a CGI right. production company. Sure. Yeah. They're going to be making people. The possibilities are endless. So yes. maybe, yeah, one time's like, well, look, we can't afford the real rock. Why don't we just get the digital rock and send the real rock a paycheck <laughs> while he's hanging out in Hawaii? Or well, that's something. There'll be like five <laughs> rock movies, you know? Right. While he gets like a hundred million dollar payday in a month. There you go. Yeah. yeah. The 15th Kevin Hart movie of 2029. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Net, Netflix, three of them on Netflix, oh, two of them on Amazon. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, ultimately, I think audiences still get to decide. I think now more than ever because of the way that yeah. the streamers work and obviously theatrical, so long as that lasts, the audiences will always have a say whether they respond or they don't. And that's what happens. Yeah, it's the ebb and flow. That's what I was saying. It's always the ebb and flow. But there is a successful rehash a $4.5 billion purchase, Star Wars, from Lucas by mm-hmm. Disney. Oh, yes. And they are putting out so much Star Wars content. Oh, yeah. We need to get into all of this right now. But I will say that we shouldn't mention, we always forget, this is J.L. Martinez along with... Kevin Sharpley. And this is the Screen Heat Miami podcast that is brought to you by... Kajik Multimedia. Camacol. The Miami Media and Film Market. And Cinevision. Woo! Nailed it again. We are on fire. Yes, straight hot fire, son. And what is on fire is Disney Plus offering. Exploding 10 million subscribers. They're estimating their first day. We said last week they blew up the internet. They exploded. I mean, it was gargantuan. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, they're already estimating that they're going to reach 60 million before expected, surpassing Netflix. They already almost have a date as to when they're going to surpass Netflix. It's not an if anymore. It's basically a when. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that Death Star is coming. It has landed and it has completely eviscerated the competition. Obviously, Netflix will fight back. The other streamers that still yet to launch Warner Brothers, that's uh, with their HBO Max. HBO Max. That's, you know, the Peacock Network from Comcast. All those are yet to launch. But before we get into Disney Plus, I just want to say something about HBO Max because I heard rumblings. And this may be something. You know, they brought back the Friends 
rights, the rights for Friends, the show, and it was so successful on Netflix. So they brought those rights back. I hear rumblings that they're going to do an original Friends movie. Really? Yes. Wow, with the original cast. With the original cast. That would be hot. And oftentimes when you start seeing these seeds, Mm. they're probably already in production, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what kind of now? What kind of mark would that make? That would make a huge mark. I think that that has such a built-in fan base that that would totally kill it. And I, I can tell you how Netflix is going to compete. I think that edgy comedies is the future for Netflix. And look at everything they're doing with. Seinfeld. They're doing well with comedies. Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. That's going to be a juggernaut for them. So you're feeling that the streamers are going to all have their own niche they have to because i don't think you can be all things to all people and again and that's what it was because hulu was just okay we're streaming amazon okay we're just streaming netflix we're just streaming right now they have to get more specific this is our brand our brand is comedy disney our brand is disney (laughs) sure and (laughs) you know right and by extension the sub brands if you can call them that of star wars and marvel Marvel and and nat geo and all that stuff so but it's it's really interesting to see how that is all going to evolve but yeah i think that the future is not necessarily bigger but it's really razor focusing in on your core audience yeah and what's interesting to me is to see how fast this pivot has happened Mm mm-hmm I mean, even Netflix, it's not really that old, you know? Right. It's with their original programming. It's not that the House of Cards did not come out that long ago. But right. this pivot, yeah. so fast. It, it, and But it's funny, you say fast, but I still think, you know, they still gave a lot of leash to Netflix to really get so far out ahead. that. Yeah, you know, but I don't think they, you know, no one was thinking that, right. you know, meaning, you know, it was a point where Netflix didn't have a choice. You know, they were paying so much money in licensing content. So buying content from other people. Correct. They were up against the wall because the people that they were buying content from, they just started charging more and more and more. And it just became untenable. Sure. So for them to do House of Cards, that was a no brainer. You know, just take part of that budget from licensing. And then it was a hit. Right. That takes away some of that pressure. Right. And then if it's a hit which House of Cards was then you just start doing more original programming I don't think anybody saw that coming no because no one expected Netflix to be able to produce like an I guess an HBO level prestige type series yeah because House of Cards went around everywhere you know and I mean that's Fincher it's Spacey when Spacey was you know Spacey right but no one was buying no they were just going to take it to pilot oh yeah Yeah. Fincher Spacey two of the biggest names then oh yeah and Netflix is like, oh, fine. Here, right. here's the money for the entire season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, no one saw that coming. I mean, we'll talk about this on the other side, but there is some other interesting news at Netflix from David Fincher that we're going to get into. Talking about bringing back the old school. Ah, Yes. And we got to get on, on. That's the other side. That's the other side. Yeah. But, yeah, I definitely want to get into a great conversation with Jay LaPlante talking about his evolution of the Miami Film Festival, which will be going into, I believe it's 37th edition 37th in march of 2020 so institution here yes in florida and all of florida one of the biggest film events in florida i would say so as far as festivals that's that's a big one yeah they just had one of my favorite directors pedro amadovar almodovar (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) well yeah this interview is also very hot and let's get into it with mr laplana we'll be back on the other side so all right here we are talking about kevin's acting career yeah this is a good addition it's a good intro yeah bringing it back kevin sharpley the actor (laughs) 
<laughs> those G- days. Jay Laplante, the film direct, the film festival director, executive director, executive director. Is that your official title, Jay? Executive director and director of programming. There you go. Oh, of the mm-hmm. the renowned Miami Film Festival. Yes, let that be known. And Jay brought sexy back. Oh, <laughs> in a, <laughs> the best way a Canadian can, right? <laughs> okay, now I know how this is gonna go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the special special late night edition yeah. of Screen Heat Miami. That's right. But uh, no, Jay's amazing, and we're so happy you're here with us. Thanks for for joining us today. Thank you, guys. I think you're amazing too. Oh, so. Thank you. So we're here with Jay Laplante, uh, who, as we mentioned, executive director, head of programming for the Miami Film Festival, which is we'll be going into which edition. 37. 37? Wow. Yeah. 37. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Anything that's 37 years old in Miami has to be ancient history. <laughs> that's right. Right? It's almost, you know, the founding of the city. Jesus. Yeah. You're like a pioneer of the whole city. <laughs> but you've been executive director for how long? This is now my 10th season. So. Wow. Man. 10. ten years! Congratulations! Yeah. Yes, Thank sir! You. Wow, yeah. the big ten zero. This is yeah. This this March will be my tenth tenth wow. festival. Yeah. I remember the first year. I remember the first year too, and wow, does it feel like another lifetime ago? <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot happened between then and now. Yeah, yeah. but ten—that's a great milestone. Yeah, yeah, it is. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. No. Hey, hey, let's just jump into it. What's going to happen for ten? We want to know. Well, um, one of the big things that we're doing is, uh, you know, for the few years I had been working with Unifrance to develop a, a market to sell European cinema to Latin American, the Latin American market. And this year we're, it's already announced that we're expanding that to include um, all of Europe. So it'll be all the European film promotion. And people say, well, what does this all mean? I go, it's basically um, like NAPTI for art films it's about, it's about selling it's about you know it's about selling yeah you know, you, you know the, the Miami film and media market is right got a different focus a great focus and, and uh, um, but that's that's what you know we're enhancing for for 2020 so it's great it brings a lot of profile for, for Miami Film Festival to, to to the international community especially in Europe and Latin America uh, and we have a few other sidebars that we're working <laughs> on and like well, you know. special events and wow. you know we uh, want to be the first we need Miami we, we need don't. to be the first to know you can't give us a little nugget <laughs> yeah well you know last year we we had um you know kind of moved the headquarters of the festival the screening headquarters to the silver spot cinemas mm-hmm. that worked out really well i mean it's a great venue you know for projection and um it, it, it's something we're going to continue because it was really a great uh, you know a good time time for that change to happen and and uh, we're really glad the way yeah. it went I love that you could put your feet up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh it, it's a beautiful. I, I always tell we talk about it a lot is that that's my sort of home theater since I live in the urban core is the silver spot in downtown. And I sure. was so excited when that opened. Yeah. Every seat is the size of a small studio apartment in yeah. New York. It feels I mean, you know, like you, you, you stretched out. You get like all this room around you. Mm-hmm. Just it's, move everyone in. Yeah. If yeah. you go to an early screening, it's like a private screening. Almost. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I brought my kids to like early 
and that we're literally the only ones in the theater. Yeah. And they're like running around, dancing in front of the screen during the end credits. It's it's a beautiful venue. It's a beautiful <laughs> venue, and they've been they've been great to work with. They've yeah. been really fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that that you guys made that move into the urban core, and you know, it's just a couple blocks away from that gorgeous Olympia Gusman. Right. Uh, yeah, venue. it really helps create this sense of a festival village. I mean, you know, the, the previous previously the festival was you know much more spread out. You know, um, being in so many different venues it was hard to create kind of like a, a core feeling where you see everyone you know walking around but now we'll be using the hotels that are in the area like the epic hotel the jw marriott marquis hotel the langford hotel mm. um so uh, so everyone you know just be you know like that much in closer proximity to each other and all our guests will be easier to get to and yeah you know have, have easier time um you know interacting with uh with us yeah you know, local creatives yeah, yeah. well all let's right. talk about the festival itself um you guys have a smaller version of the festival called the gems festival right and that just passed yeah so i started we started that six years ago because um uh you know the tower theater is um also part of our department um in terms of the way it's organized at miami Dade college so the festival uh you know staff works on at the tower theater it's uh, uh you know uh, kind of our home venue so um it was closed in 2014 for 11 months um for some really much needed renovations um put over a million dollars worth of you know new seats and new floors and new ceiling new air conditioner all kind of things that were needed so to reopen the festival we wanted to you know celebrate that so we decided that we'd just do a small version of Miami Film Festival just four days just at the Tower Theater to get one excited about the Tower reopening and we called it Mifacito <laughs> right I remember that yeah. we just had our cafecito there you go and you all had Mifacito yeah so it was really fun it was really popular um, you know we had some great films and it was different kind of films than we normally have in March just because of the season and what was available so people loved it so much they were like why don't you do this every year and we thought you know why, why don't we do this every year this is mm. you know even from the staff perspective it was a great opportunity for us to try new things and experiment with new things that maybe we could try um, you know to implement in March so um, so we put our heads together and we decided to brand it as gems because you know Mammy likes sparkling things <laughs> of course <laughs> <laughs> so it was really you know about the gems of the season and um, the first couple of years of gems we were experimenting a little bit with what what the personality of gems was going to be um you know it's going to be another chance for us to um, look for new discoveries or you know what was it going to be kind of thing and so it's kind of evolved into uh, you know a, and a kind of award season showcase where we're, we're really giving everyone in Miami the chance to see all those films that are being talked about this year for instance examples were Parasite and Marriage Story and The Two Popes and um, uh, uh, Pain and Glory yeah. for example so this gives everyone a chance to see the films before the hype really gets out yeah. of you had Motherless Brooklyn as well. Motherless Brooklyn at Norton, yeah. 
so all of the, so that's kind of the way that the festival the gems has evolved and um you know we love it we we, we, lo- we love to share cinema and, and um the fact that we can all stay in the tower theater different from different from the the main festival or the march festival where we are in many different venues at once um you know we can st- stay and talk with our talk with our audience and, and, you know afterwards and people will just stay all day to see the movies and um it's, it's a different vibe but it's one we really like and so now now it's six years that wow we've been doing that. i hate that i missed the last one i was in europe oh, so hard uh, yeah. but uh too bad At you that- had one of my favorite directors that's right yeah opening the festival with with pain and glory which is just a beautiful movie i have been such a huge fan of, of his work for in fact he's he's probably the the reason that i fell in love with um spanish spanish cinema and by extension latin american cinema so when i was you know a scrawny kid growing up in my home province of alberta canada and seeing amadova films for the first time and just you know it was like it was like Oz it's like everything was black and white and now it's in color right Women you know, on the that's, Verge that's Tommy, what, Tommy oh Down gosh yeah. Matador yeah. so yeah. so those films really changed um changed my taste in movies and changed the the course of my life really because I became wow. so impassioned with them and and you know then I started to see more films from Spain because I was so fascinated with the culture and um, then by extension you know Argentina and Brazil um, so when I did get the job at Miami Film Festival as executive director it was like the shoe fit you know like yeah. this is the cinema the cinema that I love the best is the cinema that Miami Film Festival specializes in. So, well, can we talk about that? But I do want to get well, into we, where you're from. Yeah, I think we need, we need to take a step back because you know, obviously, you're, you're not originally from Miami, uh, as you mentioned, Alberta, Canada. So, right. tell us about sort of your start and where you're from, and kind of what we mentioned on Modelar, but what what lit that passion for the film industry? Well, um, I was just very passionate about cinema from as as early in age as I could remember, even eight and nine and ten. I remember for my tenth birthday, I asked my mother for a Pauline Kael book, a review, a book of Pauline Kael reviews from The New Yorker. Like, what kind of loser ten-year-old kid <laughs> is not going to be outside playing hockey with his friends, instead is going to be reading, you know, Pauline Kael reviews. There you go. So that started it off. Um, so, you know, I loved movies but the other thing this when i couldn't watch a movie the thing that i liked to do the best was talk about the movie you know discuss the movie um or read about the movie you know so that that grew to my that grew my love of film criticism and um later on you know being a film curator and and, and having that interaction with um with a curator and an audience yeah but uh so we had a hometown newspaper where i where i was from it was in um a suburb of Edmonton, which is the capital of of, uh, of Alberta, and um, it was called the Saint Albert Gazette. Okay, and they had a movie critic, and he sucks. <laughs> he just didn't know which way was left and which way was right. So I wrote a letter to the editor, and I said, "Your movie critic sucks." <laughs> Really? Essentially, okay. essentially, of course. I wish I'd saved that letter. <laughs> word for word. Wow. <laughs> I wish I'd saved it. But basically, uh, I got a call from the editor because this is in the '80s, so you know, there's no email, there's no right. texting. 
Um, and the editor says, uh, you know, ironically, our movie critic is leaving this week. He's moving to a different city. And uh, we, the position's open. Would you like to try for it? Wow. So I said, I would love to. He says, why don't you send me a sample column? So I wrote a column hmm. and uh, mailed it in. And um, I was... 13 years old at the time. 13? Yes. Did they know your age? They did. They did not know my age because I already had this voice. Oh. I had hit puberty a little early. (laughs) I was the tallest kid in my class. You know, I I had hit puberty early. So I had this voice already. So I was speaking with this voice (laughs) on the phone being 13 years old. (laughs) They thought they were speaking to an adult and um you know like that's that was the magic of things back then there was no like facetime they couldn't look you up on social media there's no social media so i mailed in this column they liked it and they published it and they wow (laughs) so a 13 year old yeah better than the adult seasoned critic well in my opinion (laughs) we'll say that we're writing this history there you go we'll we'll write this history our way I, i like your style um, so, you know, that went well. And they said, okay, we're going to pay you um, $50 a week to write the film column. Wow. You know, which like 13-year-old kid, that's better than cutting lawns or babysitting. Oh, it's, it's better than a paper route. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you get to write it, not deliver it. It's better than a lot of stuff. Yeah. So after three or four columns, I went in to pick up my first check. And that's when they found out how old that, I was. Really? Yeah. Oh. I, that's when. And but you know what could they say? They'd already given me the job. They already, like, already published like you know four articles. They were they were cool. They were like, okay, this great. is what we're doing. So um, from the age of thirteen until the age of nineteen, which is when I left that um, left my hometown to go study film at York University in Toronto, I wrote two columns a week uh, for six years on the movies, and I went to all the press screenings. Back then, you know, they would have press screenings. So I would see three or four films per week. And that was my education. That's wow. how I learned about film. And, um, you know, I, I just, you know, learned, I got my voice, not only as a writer, but as a, as a critic and as a curator. I, hmm. You know, discovered who I was and what I was interested in. And part of that journey was discovering the films of Pedro Almodovar in Spain and Latin America. Mm. So, so, um, so that's wow. how that happened. That's crazy. <laughs> that is. It was the best education. I mean, you know, when, when I don't remember what I learned in high school, but I remember all the films that I saw and, right. you know, I saved all the columns that I wrote and, you know, I loved, I loved what well, I Well, that doing. is a great way to mark history though. Yeah. Because I remember all the films, you know, throughout time and I associate those films with the place and the time that I saw those films. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. had Dean Lyon who was a visual effects supervisor on Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And that was just like really amazing having him here because although Amadovar, you know, was someone that really was a big influence for me in terms of those type of films, fantasy films. When I saw Lord of the Rings in the theater, sure, it just mm-hmm. blew me back, mm-hmm. you know? And so when we were talking to Dean, I was just thinking about that time when Lord of the Rings and around that time period and I could feel it and smell it. And yeah, it's a seminal moment in your life, you know, and right. you, can, you can point to that and say, you know, this this changed the course of my life and this changed the way I think about, you know, my work and my career and, and what I want to do and what, it, you know, like all of us work in the 
movie business know that it's not easy. You know? <laughs> no. And it's less and less easy as this industry um, continues to change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hanging on to that original passion is, is you know, those moments are can be critical for us to, to sustain what we're doing, you know. And wow. even, you know, like I try to watch a movie every day, which is hard because <laughs> sure you know there's I, I really have two jobs you know executive director is one job and director of programming is another job um so you know i can't do all of them all you know all the time so i at least try to watch one film a day to keep mm. me connected to you know what i'm doing so that when i'm doing budgets or administration or right. marketing or uh, <laughs> contracts or, you know, the real work, all the other stuff <laughs> that you got to do to make a film festival take flight. Right. Um, you know, I, I am connected to wow. that, to that. Passion. So wh- I'm just, what brought you out of Alberta, Canada? What, what was your next move as a, as sort of someone that was following this career path? Yeah. Good question. Well, I, when I finished high school, I had a choice of what, you know, where to study and, or what to study. And, and I wanted to study film. I mean, that was, that was my driving passion. So, um, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in film. You know, again, I was still exploring. So, and I knew I wanted to stay in Canada. So I explored different film schools um, at the time in Vancouver and um, Montreal and Toronto had two film film schools. I had York University, which is the one I eventually chose, and Ryerson Polytechnical. Um, so... So I chose York and I went to, to York and um, started off very generally, you know, took directing classes, took production classes, took theory classes, took screenwriting classes. Um, and uh, and that's what it was. You know, it was hmm. just it was just like, where can I where can I take what's the next step for me in terms of exploring, exploring this, you know thing that I think about 24 hours a day uh, so that's that's wow. that's what that's what took me to Toronto and then I studied for three years at York York University and I graduated um, I graduated my major was screenwriting uh, it was the path I eventually took and then after it was over I moved to LA uh, of course <laughs> Tinseltown. Soon as film school was <laughs> over, uh, I think film school. I think we graduated in May, and I was in LA by September. Maybe, wow. Maybe earlier. I can't remember. But um, that, that's that's what happened. I went there to you know see what I could do. So yeah, worked on some indie productions. I just did you know whatever I could find, and you know like a, I was amazed because my image of LA was you know studio town, right? But wow. Wow, there was a great network of independent filmmakers making yeah. no budget or low budget or like films for less than 100k and i mm. was just like these people are cool this is not <laughs> this is not what i thought i would find in la but found this great great kind of network of people to you know to work with and, mm. and hang out with and um you know i i mean i did just really like a lot of odd jobs but but i learned a lot and sure. uh yeah. Meanwhile, I was working on a screenplay that okay. I wanted to I wanted to write, and it was set in Toronto. So after some time, I went back to Toronto to kind of finish the script. And there was a, I was I was co-writing it with um, um, a theater director named John Palmer, who had directed one feature um, feature film already, and was really 
designing this project to to be his second feature film. So I went up to finish the script with him, went back to Toronto to finish the script with him, and we were looking for a producer. And um, sold that... Um, Went through a couple of different independent producers, but then uh, we, they, this, this second group of producers raised the money and was shot. So we shot the movie in Toronto. It was called Sugar. Wow. Oh. Yeah. And uh, it, it, uh, I was really proud of it. I was really proud of the way it turned out. We brought a third writer in to help you know, finish, finish, it, finish it off. But um, the film did really well. It was picked up for distribution in the United States by TLA Releasing. Small company, but yeah, right. still was still. distributed. And, you got to uh, find it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's available from you know from TLA on on DVD. <laughs> this is uh, this is you know yeah. the, the last decade. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's uh, but uh, but uh, in Canada it was also you know relatively successful. It was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, really? Canadian Academy Awards, including for the screenplay. So, oh, yeah, it was great. I, I nominated. I went to the went to the ceremonies. Andrea Martin was the and was the host wow. of the the Canadian Oscars that year, and I I took my parents as my oh, oh yeah. man, yeah. My mom, my mom said, "I feel like I'm at a wedding." <laughs> <laughs> a wedding. It was oh, great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just what popped out of her mouth. And Alberta Watson was there. She was wow nominated for um, for her. Uh, for a film that she had done, although of course my parents knew her from watching Twenty Four, and uh, sure they got pictures with her. Uh, of course yeah. they did. Yeah, not so many pictures with me, but they got pictures <laughs> with Alberta Watson. <laughs> oh, Jay, we can get you when you come home. <laughs> exactly, we've got you in the photo op. We got you. We got your baby pictures. Wow. We, don't, we don't need any more. So now you're an award-nominated screenwriter doing all these great things in Toronto. So what what was next for you? What, what was your intention? Well. Um, you know, I wrote another script and uh, was hoping for the same kind of success, but uh, didn't ha- didn't didn't get produced. Couldn't mm. couldn't do that. So couldn't couldn't make it happen. So was still trying to write. Um, you know, it was a little bit drifting at that that time. I was working on you know some events like a, at an event company, which was great because it appealed to my sense of drama and staging. Mm. And you know, um, to this day, when you go to Miami Film Fest. First of all, the films may be great, but the parties, the parties are even better. Right. We do not have bad parties at the Miami Film Festival. <laughs> and that comes from my um, my my background in producing events. And um, also, I worked for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival for quite a while. And I wow. knew, knew the value of a good party. Yes, sure. Is that what brought you to Miami initially? No, no. Initially, I came to Miami for L'Amour. Oh. Oh. Love. Okay. You only move for two reasons in life. Love or money. Or money. That's right. And it wasn't money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you move for the best reason. I move for the best reason. Yeah. No, you know, I I had friends here. I had friends in in Miami and, you know, living in Toronto at that time. You know, by March, March, you're suicidal in Canada. Oh, It is gray. It is cold. The winter just doesn't seem to end. Well, I'm from Detroit. So, you know. Yeah. You like come March, you get, like you take your vacation time and you go to the somewhere where you can get right. some sun. Some, some. Some, yeah. <laughs> so I had friends in Miami, so I would come here a lot. And um, on one of those trips, I 
Ah, he found it. Yeah. yeah. That's so, awesome. so, uh, so, yeah. You know, it's like a young guy. So I just decided to throw caution to the wind. Wow. And uh, sell all my stuff in Toronto and move here. Oh, and that was hard, wasn't it? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. <laughs> but to be honest, it was tough. Oh, it it was. was tough because Miami is not an easy place to understand. No, it's, it's not. a very complex. Uh, it's a very complex place, and. Um, in that first year of living here, I really struggled. I struggled to understand it. I struggled to understand the work ethic. I struggled to understand the culture. I struggled to yeah. understand all the nuances that were present in in the Latino cult in the different Latino cultures, and all the the different nuances that were present in the Cuban culture as well. Right. Like, uh, so Cafecito. right? Beyond that, beyond that, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, showing up on time for anything. Different line. <laughs> That's right. Different different politics different lines yeah. of thinking different values um so um i i struggled and and um i felt lonely a little mm. you know and um my relationship didn't work out and i decided to stay anyway oh, oh. and um you know i fell in love with the city though you know you i started go. to get it like like i think i think miami hat things get done in miami they just get done in their own rhythm. Yes. And if you can get into that rhythm and understand it, you're golden. Mm-hmm. You're, it's true. You've got it. You're right. If you don't, if you're always fighting it, you don't last more than two years here. Yeah, you're right. And uh, so I've met people that have not got it and have shipped out after two years or two years or less. And um, for me, it was in that second year that I really started to get it and get Miami and really fall in love with it and here I am 21 years later wow you found a new love I found I fell in love with the city instead. that's fantastic yeah. that's fantastic so when I met you you were working for the South Beach Food and Wine Festival and I think also the Miami Short Film Festival you were doing that's right program. yeah that's right that's right so so I um uh, Lee Schrager, who's the founder and director of the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, is a, one of the great mentors of my life. I, someone I look up to and learn so much from. And um, he uh, was looking for some help at a certain point and contacted me. And um, we decided that we would give this a shot. So I, I went to to work for the festival and uh, the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. And um, it was a great experience because I was working on a national event with a great budget they have sure. great sponsors there and um, working with uh, working with a you know great number of celebrities you know from the food network uh, so it was a great learning experience and so many of the lessons that I learned there you know brought 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 a lot of those lessons to to the Miami International Film Festival yeah. when, I, when I got the job but but you know, the wine and food festival, Epicurean, that that is mm. that is in Lee's blood. That is Lee's passion. Just mm. the way that film is in my blood and is my passion. So um, while I was, you know, learning all these things at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival and going through all these incredible experiences, I wanted to stay connected to film. So I um, got uh, uh, this gig with William Bella and uh, being the to do the programming for the Miami Short Film Festival, which was perfect because I'm such a driven person that I really do not sleep a lot. So at night, when I had finished my work for the day for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival, I would sit down at my computer and I would watch short films. 
till three, four in the morning, you know, mm. and you can between, you know, like those hours of the night when you have no interruptions, you can watch a lot of short films. Yeah. So, so I programmed the Miami Short Film Festival um, during while I was while I was working for 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 the South Beach Wine Food Festival. It was like my, you know, my hobby, my Your side hustle. Yeah, right. my side hustle kind of thing. <laughs> and that was great. And that's how we met. And I met a lot of wonderful filmmakers from all over the world and also locally and um i think that's that's you know when i did get the job at miami film festival i think that's what the the people at miami Dade college saw they saw that you know i had this experience being able to administrate and run a, a, you know a major event such as the south beach Wine a national event yeah as well i have film programming experience so if you put the two together you know that's the mission don't forget about the canadian academy awards ah and the canadian <laughs> yes. academy awards well the Perfecto. That's there you go. That's yeah. there you go. So, wow. I you know I I don't know why they hired me, but uh, I'm guessing that was that was what what sort of you know right. put the package together. You know films and know how to throw a party. <laughs> what else do you the need? The parties, yeah. I think it was the parties that was really the, the overriding factor there. <laughs> but you know what? There's something interesting in that because I was a judge for the Miami Short Film Festival for a couple of years, and also I'm a judge for the Miami Film Festival. For, mm-hmm. Full disclosure. Yeah. But shorts. You know, there's a lot in those stories. I love the shorts. You know, people, my fellow film festival directors around the world, they're aghast when they find out that I still insist upon programming Mm. the short film myself. Really? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. because it's generally, you know, you're the the director of programming. You look after the big things. We only look at features at this (laughs) point. Right, or you only do, like, the, you know, like, the main stage stuff. Right, right, right. You know, like, the junior programmers will do the short films. Like, that's kind of the industry norm. But no, I I love shorts so much, I insist upon... You know, doing that programming myself, and, and the so. care that you take in that program, oh, yeah. it's I, very well curated. It is. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I adore shorts because um, I I love the simplicity of you know telling one idea in an eco- economical way. The shorter the short, the better. You know, I I love shorts that are ten minutes or less. You know, because they generally have one idea in them. Yeah. You know, and and just to see someone execute that idea in a in a way that reminds me, you know, that gives me something about you know, reminds me of something about life that I've forgotten, perhaps. Uh, it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. Yeah, yeah. this is and JL and I both have had shorts in the Miami Film Festival. That's right. I've so, had. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm kind of a veteran. You know, I think I've that's had, why I'm such. A good curator. You are. <laughs> as long as you keep accepting my stuff, <laughs> forget everybody else. <laughs> but but yeah, I think you know it, it's it's amazing how that happens. And you know, we had a conversation recently about how you know filmmakers, especially emerging filmmakers, really should think about short films as a stepping stone to something else, or as sort of you know a demo to where you want to go. Um, even you know treating your short film as a pilot for something bigger. Mm. Yeah, we just had uh, Brett Potter, who is the chief... He's the chairman of the board of directors of Borscht. Of Borscht. Okay. Right. Yeah, but he's had you know numerous shorts, and mm-hmm. he was also a producer on Yearbook, which is one of my favorite films, short animated film. And, you know, we had this conversation. He's our guest that's on the air right now. Okay. Right. You know? And we had this conversation that Jail's talking about, which is, you know, shorts giving filmmakers the ability to cut their teeth. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, if they democratize that and utilize that, you know, it can be the stepping stone to the next. 
Well, I mean, I, you know, producing a great short that get, that does well and, and you know travels and connects with people, connects with audiences, can give you a tremendous amount of confidence. Right. You know, it's not just what you learn in putting the film together, but you know, a film is uh, a film. Making a film is only one hand clapping until you have an audience to share it with. You know, until that's true. That's 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 what makes the communication process complete uh, and that's my joy as a curator is being the you know conduit you know finding a film that I really love and connecting it to an audience and then watching that audience respond and get it and you know mm. putting the artist together with the audience that's my you know that's my role like yeah. I don't have any other role other than to put those two things together you know right. make the, to facilitate that communication because I'm not communicating I'm not the artist and I'm you know I'm the first audience but I'm not the ultimate audience so I'm just a, the facilitator and and I think when a short filmmaker or any filmmaker but a short filmmaker is what we're talking about in this case um, has that experience of an audience really getting and understanding their theme or what they wanted to get across what they wanted to communicate with the film can give them a tremendous amount of confidence that is uh, will never leave them you know yeah. will take them to the next film the next step and then uh, you know the next part of their journey and and if that's a feature right away great if that's another short you know but that's that communication process is something that is so important for film festivals all film festivals because if film festivals didn't exist there wouldn't be that forum you know for for that communication for connecting with that audience because it's not like theater no. Right. And cinema is changing so much now. I mean, Scorsese wrote a little, well, he made the statement first. He made a very interesting statement that we've talked about a lot. Oh, yeah. And then he wrote the article. And then he wrote the op-ed. About the changing, right. t- basically the changing tides of cinema. Yeah. Yeah, I read that article and, um, you know, it was... Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts? I, I mean, I don't think he was saying anything that none of us don't already know. Right. You know, we don't already know this, but... Um, I mean, but it's an interesting, there's a bigger argument, obviously, because you represent a film festival and the independent voice and how viewing habits are changing. I mean, you know, you see this onslaught of the digital streamers and how everyone can have whatever content they want on whatever screen without having to leave their house. What is the importance? What do we need to latch on to for even film festivals like Miami to continue to have a significance of this? I guess what I call this communal, almost religious experience of watching things together. Mm. I mean, well, I think we just have to keep supporting, supporting the film festivals and go. And and, uh, I'm happy that in Miami, we that is not really an issue. I mean, Mm. the film Miami Film Festival can, you know, enjoys great attendance and enjoys, you know, a very enthusiastic audience. And I think, you know, there's a number of other I think there's 18 film festivals happening in Miami. Um, the Jewish Film Festival, Borsch, uh, Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, Brazilian Film Festival, and all of them um, are thriving from my perspective. And the art cinemas are also thriving. You know, art cinemas are closing all over the country. And in Miami, they are, you know, we're having, we get more of them. Right. Um, and they're all doing well, which is great. So I think that's, of course, the important thing. But I think one of the things that Scorsese, uh, the best points that Scorsese made is that the issue right now is that some of the, you know, the, this big blockbuster cinema of the, you know, Marvel Universe or the, you know, Star Wars or whatever, what, you know, these, these really big type of worldwide tentpole, tentpole franchise. That's, that's, right. that's the word I was trying yeah, to get. Yeah, yeah. That, um, that cinema is 
being used in a bullying way mm. to kind of bury or limit or um, you know prevent the smaller you know art cinema from from breaking out and I don't and I think that's a good point to make because I think that is happening. You know, well, they're dominating screens. They're dominating screens, and they're sucking up all the oxygen. And I, I don't think, you know, there's a certain point where, like, how much more profit do we need? Right. You know, how much bigger does it have to be? Um, you know, I, I think that the that the people who are working in that cinema and controlling controlling Hollywood and the studio system and controlling that tentpole uh, environment um, you know they all understand cinema they you know they they're movie people right they should be using some of that power to you know keep that other cinema thriving and to give some of the oxygen to that cinema you know even five percent or ten percent kind of thing and i think that's what scorsese's point was making and that's you know the man is in his late 70s or mid 70s and you know this is the first time he's ever really spoken out in that kind of level and made a statement and i think it's because he's seeing this this danger you know and this Mm. this kind of uh you know, it's a bit of a, what is, he said in the article. It's a, it's a bullying, it's right. a bullying environment. And it's, it's interesting because we're spending so much more money, it seems, on content than we've ever had. Sure. And, yeah. But again, it feels like they're just going after these big franchises. But I think it's obviously you know independent cinemas and festivals like Miami that are really the ones that are breathing life into independent cinema. And it's so important. And one thing I wanted to touch on, and something that particularly in your last edition that you did so well, is how much you represented local filmmakers from mm, Miami. Yeah, that's very that was a big article in the Herald. It was, I believe, 36 local films. That's right. Mm-hmm. That was part of the 36th annual Miami Film Festival. How important is that going forward in terms of representing the local culture and the local filmmakers? It's hugely important. You know, I, we have built a great machine at the Miami Film Festival. It's, you know, got a great reputation internationally. And if we can, if we can leverage that to lionize and lift our local creatives up and you know confidence is something i spoke about earlier in the podcast so you know being part of that you know being on an equal plane with films that are you know been in Cannes and been in the berlin film festival or venice or tiff you know being sharing screens with them you know being on the same level in terms of you know we've each got the same badge here you know yeah. like this is this is this is huge this is a, a real chance for the local creatives to without having a fly to Toronto or fly to Cannes or, you know, right here, right in their, you know, hometown to be able to interact with the, you know, the world stage of cinema is a, is a great opportunity. And I've seen magic happen, you know, Mm. in the, in the 10 years I've seen local creatives, um, connect with international filmmakers, international business people, international financiers. And, you know, maybe they don't eventually work together but it's someone that becomes part of their network someone that they learn from and it's someone that they interact with and it just gives them that access like outside of our local uh, you know creative ecosystem here um, so it's that's part of my goal I want to lift and lionize our creatives in Miami I love them all I love the work that's being done here <laughs> yeah. you know it's so exciting to me it just moves me tremendously when I see a really well made film that could that can 
tell a Miami story that's universally universally um, resonant. Um, so so that's that's what drives me forward. It's part of my heart, you know. It's part of my my love for what I do, and um, that's uh, that's why it's such a big part of the festival because it's so important to me. Yeah. Well, I can say um, another for me big thing about the Miami Film Festival is, you know. It's been a part of discovery, Hmm. and it is discovery. For me, one of my great moments was when the Miami Film Festival debuted a documentary. And you've debuted documentaries since, but debuted a documentary for the opening night of nights. But yeah, 20 Feet from Stardom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you were one of the first to champion that. And you also brought Darlene Love, who I met. Oh my gosh, she blew the roof off the the Olympia Theater. Mm. Almost at the Gusman. Yeah. But it's the Olympia Theater now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's a beautiful theater. Yeah, but you did champion that film early on. Yeah, no, it was was in Sundance. Um, That year, it was 2013, I was was very nervous that year because it was mid-January and I did not have an opening night film yet. that's you know when, when I retire from this job and write my memoirs, I'm gonna just it's gonna be the history of trying to you know the opening night films. It's always the hardest thing, you know, getting the right film to kick off, you know, to represent the year, to kick off the film festival in the right way, to speak to the community in the right way. So I went to Sundance. I don't go every year because it's so close to um, to to the time that we locked the program, but uh, I didn't have an opening night film, so. <laughs> Uh, 20 Feet from Stardom was showing on the opening day of Sundance. I saw it. It was amazing, of course. And we were, uh, Tom Powers and I, Tom Powers is our documentary um, programmer who lives in New York, uh, just went after that film with all, everything we had. We said, we need to know now. We need to lock this. We need to get it done. Now. Thinking about it. They're thinking about it. They're thinking about it. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Wow. And we're like, and then we're like, okay, but we want Darlene Love. Darlene Love has to come. Sure. You know, deals off if there's no Darlene Love. You know, like as if we had like six or seven other options, which we didn't. <laughs> we had no other options, but, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, we, we played it hardball and they, um, they agreed and Darlene came and, um, you know, she did the red carpet before the film, but she's 20 feet from stardom. So nobody knew who she was. And then after the film, she came out and she sang stand by me acapella Ugh. and, there was not a dry eye in the house. There, yeah. That was a moment. There was so many goosebumps in that auditorium, I'll tell you. Um, so because Darlene wasn't so well known to the public, we hadn't really arranged, you know, kind of one of these VIP, like private areas for her. You know, we didn't, we didn't think of it. She couldn't walk at the opening night party. Like sure. everybody wanted to touch her. There was a line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was. I it, stood in that line. It was one of the most electric moments. And then something else I was really proud of is that one year later, at the Academy Awards in 2014, that film won the Best Documentary Oscar. Wow. And everyone in Miami saw it wow. 12 months earlier with Darlene Love in person. Wow. There you go. That was a great moment, Kevin. You got a good memory. <laughs> that was definitely a highlight. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Wow. Yeah. yeah so that's... I mean, I, I think that, yeah, there's, this has been such an epic journey because it just kind of shows the power of cinema to bring people together. You know, we're all from different experiences, different backgrounds, but... 
I really think it's just the love and the passion just for seeing how things unfold on screen that really brings things together. And that's the hope that I have. And I hope part of what Scorsese's legacy, what he's talking about continues Mm -hmm. is that communal experience of doing something together, experiencing something together, then throwing a hell of a party after and getting to talk about it. That's right. I don't think that's going to go away. That's that's going to be my mantra. No, I mean, the box office is still ahead this year. Yeah. You know, with yeah. films like Joker, which, you know, was going to hit a billion. And, uh, you know, we talked about, well, it is kind of like a temple at this point. Right. But um, it's so it's still ahead because there's been a lot of breakout films. Um, so that communal experience is still happening. Maybe not necessarily, you know, the Scorsese way per se. Um, you know, I... I, th- I think uh, people who get to see The Irishman in a theater will be, you know, very happy that they did. It's mm. incredible. Parasite is ripping it up. Parasite's ripping it up. But um, I, I re- I'm with you. I really think that the passion is there for these experiences. But I think what what our responsibility is, as both as filmmakers and as curators, is to be making films that are resonant, mm. that, you know, people... That, that touch people you know that affect people that are films that people want to see yeah you know that is our that is our task that is that you know we take it very seriously like you know we we are looking for films that are connect going to connect with people at the main film festival that is the criteria not is this a good film and do I like it personally as a programmer no who is the audience for this film mm. who am I trying to connect with who am I trying to communicate with in Miami by programming this movie every single film goes through that test goes through those conversations you know we have um, we have uh, like 30 people that are working on our our program committee Kevin's one of them Um, and then we have five senior programmers actually six um, with Lauren Cohen but um, but we have those conversations and you know yeah. The notes. The yeah. notes are so important. The you notes. got on me about my notes. The notes are so my important game. because all of that, everyone's perspective of why, why program this movie. Yes, it's a good movie. It's a, you know, it's a worthy movie. But why, why program it? You know, we only have slots for maybe eighty feature films and twenty five short films. Right. And we have literally thousands of options hmm. to choose from every year. What are we, you know, what are going to be those 80 film, those 80 features in those 25 shorts? Mm-hmm. You know, they're very carefully chosen. You don't want to, you don't want to waste a slot. Sure. You, know, you want every film to be every, resonant. Every slot is precious. Every yeah. slot is precious. That's our motto. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I do love that. That is true. Well, I think it's time to move into our staple moment. Yeah, and I was going to segue, but I'm going to reverse it. You're going to reverse it? I'm going to reverse it. Oh, boy. And the reverse is, and this is part and parcel to what was going to be the last question. Yeah, we could staple it, too. We could staple it. I got a stapler right here. <laughs> Um, but but this is a, a dual thing, you know. W- what advice would you give to filmmakers, but also, let's just say people getting into the industry. So that's that's a two part, you know. What advice would you give the filmmakers? But the industry is wide ranging. Maybe there's someone who wants to be an executive director of a film festival. Maybe there's someone who wants to be, you know, an agent. Maybe there's someone who wants to be uh, just a producer. So this is a dual. So if you have a passion for the entertainment industry, what advice would you give that person in pursuing it? 
Well, and specifically the second part, filmmakers. Filmmakers, yeah. I think one 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 thing that I can say is that don't. Um, I would not be waiting for a, like the what you perceive to be the perfect moment or, uh, you know, the perfect way of, of doing things or having a certain, I, I would just say yes to every experience that you can get at the beginning and to be persistent. I mean, you know, uh, I've seen, I've seen it happen where people just do, they do things for free or they, you know, they, they'll, they'll do, they'll do things that are they're maybe not sure about until but it's just it's a foot in the door you know it's a foot in the door and that, and I say that from from experience because when I was writing um I, you know writing my film column I was learning you know learning who I was and learning who, what my interests were when I went to film school I did everything before I figured out that you know I really love screenwriting that's the thing that I'm I'm good at and then you know when I was in LA I was doing just everything to just try and meet people and get into this network so i would say just be uh just be humble enough to to be open to to whatever experience you can get and the second thing is to um to be uh to to not to not give up when it doesn't work out right away i mean i think the people that don't make it are the people that you know only give it a year or two years and give up. I mean, I, you just, you really, you, you know, the people that drop off are the people that give up. So if you just keep going, if you keep yeah. going, even when it just seems really, really bleak or like nothing's happening, like stick with it, stick with it. It's the consistency that counts. Yeah, that's great advice. And then the second part, and I'll, I'll ask it is, you know, what would, what advice would you give the Jay LaPlante back in, in Canada when he, when he was 13 years old writing those columns? Wow. <laughs> wow. Do we have another 45 minutes? Maybe. Okay. Let's, let's just keep it to film. We're not going to go Keep it to film. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, gee. Gee, I don't know. I think I, I think I would say um, I think I would say I, I would probably give myself the same advice that I had just given <laughs> to everyone else. Right. Because um, you know I think you know this, the mistakes that I've made or the the ways that I've sold myself short or made things more difficult for myself are because I was intolerant about certain aspects of the industry or about certain types of work that I just didn't see fitting into my vision and then later on realized that you know I uh, could have been more humble at that moment I could have been more open you know and I had to learn learn to be more open mm. so um, so you know if I had known that or if I had been that way from the age of 13 that would have been cool <laughs> but like most of us I had to learn from trial and error well I'm sorry Jay at 13 and Maybe I was just stopping from playing with toys. Okay. So not all of us can be We're writing film columns <laughs> with, with a real job at 13. There you go. You there underachiever. You go. I'm, still, I'm still making that same mistake. Still being too hard on myself, right? <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing great. So this, Thanks, was, this has been amazing. Yes. yes. The multi-talented, multi-hyphenate, one and only executive director of our beloved film festival, the Miami Film Festival, Jay LaPlante. Thank you so much. Woo! Thank you guys. Thank you.
Okay, here we are. That was a great interview. That was great. That was such a good, good sort of reminder as to why we do what we do. The Canadian Academy Awards. Man, who would have known? Who would have thunk it? Man, Jay. With the filmmaking credentials. Writers. Yeah. yeah That's writing. what they say. It stops and starts with the writing. That's right. It's not on the page. It's not going to be on the screen. That's exactly how it works in our business. Definitely. But yeah, that was that was fun. That was great to sit down and chat with him and catch up and all the great work he's doing with the Miami Film Festival and really And has done. Has done, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been a great run for him and, and you know, I was really proud of that thirty sixth edition where they had all those local filmmakers represented as well. Yeah, you were in there. Uh, yeah, we had a film I produced, Marcus, so that's coming along. Hoping the feature will be out next year. Yeah, and in that article they did a video and I was in that video. Oh, yeah. There you go. Well, obviously, you're an alumni of the Miami Film Festival. I've had a couple of... I had a a VR project in the festival last year. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. I I, I stopped by your booth at the tower. That was awesome. Yeah. We had fun. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good time. Fest is always fun. Ah, It really is. But yeah, so much going on uh, in terms of the independent film scene in Miami. You know, we we do want to remind our listeners that there's a lot going on this coming weekend as well in terms of great places to watch independent cinema, Borscht will be going into its second weekend. Yes. Yes. Our guest from last week. That's right. Potter. He's the chief at the Borscht Corp. Oh, he is. And their festival is popping off right now. And I'm looking. They've been packed. Yeah. They've been packed every night. Come and see the Screen Heat crew. Yes. At events for Borscht. But yeah, they've they've been getting a good response. Uh, Yeah, I saw some. An outstanding response. Yeah, on Twitter, like lines out the door. It's been it's been great. So uh, tonight, which is Thursday night, uh, the 21st, they've got something going on at the Scottish Rite Temple. uh, And it's uh, what they call, I guess, the uh, the Bisque Corp or something like that. So this is like their kind of spinoff of young filmmakers that have emerged and now they're doing their own thing. Yeah. And last night was the Harmony Corinne thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, Andrew Hevia, who is an alumni and a co-founder uh, that also co-produced Moonlight, had his uh, feature documentary premiere uh, this past week as well. Yeah. And then, of course, Friday night, they have their flagship event at the Adrian R Center in downtown Miami, a beautiful venue, concert hall, where they'll be showing like the, the big commissioned short films that will probably go on to places like Sundance and Tribeca and Cannes. And yeah, their shorts have been so many places. Lord knows what else. Yeah. But that is, you know, you talk about festivals and evolution of festivals. That is one evolution. Yeah. A big evolution. It's great. But what's cool is Brett Potter talked about now festivals looking at episodic content. That's what I wanted to get. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the future of film festivals and how, yeah, you know, it's now content. So even film festivals are embracing this idea, not all of them, obviously, but uh, different formats. Yeah, and, and you know, I feel that in a, in a big way they have to. And the reason why is that shift. Although there is, you know, maybe the same amount of money in movies, the money is going to the tentpole films. Right. And that's what's changed. So they're not producing as many films So a lot of people that worked in film before, whether it's the A-list actors or the A-list writers or A-list directors that would only do films now are going into episodic. Oh, they are. Yeah. And you can feel the difference. I mean, you know, you look at The Mandalorian. 
Oh, yeah. I wanted to totally get into that. The Mandalorian. I've seen both episodes. I think you've watched them as well. I've seen them both. John Favreau. John. That's what I'm saying. It's streaming content, but John Favreau. Yeah, known for, you know, his his feature films. Obviously, he was involved in the Marvel Universe. Elf. Uh, Elf Iron well. Man. And he's an actor, you know, he's in his an, place happy. Yeah, in the but Marvel started in the, in the indie film game, you yeah. know. Swingers. Swingers. And he did Chef. And he, one of our alums. Yes. Uh, yes. Paul Brett, Paul our, Brett. our British friend, uh, was a, a producer on Chef, which shot partially in Miami. It was a great little film that he did. You know, I think it was an exercise for him to just Yeah, but of, whatever these exercises were. They work. It all went into The Mandalorian. Oh, man. The Mandalorian was really a throwback. Like, I think I referenced it in a couple episodes ago that it's really like a space western. And it really is. It has this really cool feel to it. This old school kind of vibe you know almost like this man with no name that comes into town and just kind of like you know just out there for the bounty but obviously things start to evolve I don't want to give too many spoilers no but it's so and you're good. not all of that I think is in the description so if you go but it's, right. a, it's a Disney plus and you know I've spoken with a lot of people about it and I think for most of the people that I've spoken with about it right one of their biggest negatives is it's only one episode a week yeah yeah that's that's true that because we had talked about that discussion of whether they should drop it like net drop it like it's hot like netflix (laughs) the whole thing or they should do this sort of platform release yeah and it's not a negative you know in terms of you know how companies do things you know it's just everyone has been so used to that netflix model Mm. where they just drop everything at the same time yeah but there's a lot to a lot to be said about anticipation no there is and i you know i like it it's a little annoying now because i guess we got to kind of used to the netflix model where i kind of felt like i wanted to kind of binge that one yeah but it's not annoying because you know you can't binge everything you never leave the house and you know what i think it does give chance for your fellow fans friends colleagues whatever to catch up with you so you can say hey you got to go watch that thing and then you can watch you know the last three together (laughs) right so you can have that water cooler moment those water cooler moments yeah so it's it's interesting to see how everyone's still kind of fighting their foothold into what works best in terms of the release. Yeah, but in terms of festival evolution, I think even with the Miami Film Festival, you know, they've had even now a little bit more of a focus on short films, Mm -hmm. which, you know, Brett Potter said, short films, if you're looking at your short film, you should look at it in a way where, you know, you can expand it. Yeah. So whether it's feature film or you can expand it into episodic content. Yeah. So I think the Miami Film Festival's focus on shorts mm-hmm. allows for that. You know, Tribeca now has their own episodic. Right. And Sundance as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that's going to be a great festival to kind of see what those next things are, those breakouts. And and that's going to be happening March 6th to the 15th of 2020. So if you're in Miami, you're from Miami, you're planning to visit Miami, it'd be a great time to come and catch the Miami Film Festival's 37th edition. It's going to be good stuff. And there's something else happening tonight? Uh, yes. Uh, recent cinema from Spain. So if you are a Spanish movie fan, you mentioned Almodovar. One of my favorites. <laughs> Uh If you want to see more uh, sort of contemporary recent cinema out of that country, then they will they're starting a series this weekend. The opening night is tonight, Thursday night at the beautiful and historic Olympia Theater and downtown Miami, which is one of the old movie palaces. Ah, yes, it is beautiful. Yes. Sylvester Stallone actually paid for the restoration of that. I heard. He did. He's a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a University of Miami alumni. Ah, so yes. Used to be a longtime resident of our of our city. He bleeds orange, orange and green. He does. Yes. It's all about the U. Yep. Yeah. And so 
throwing it back, there is a prequel coming to one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Chinatown. Oh, yes. On Netflix. Oh, yes. And Chinatown arguably is considered one of the best scripts ever written. There's books. Sid Feld's screenplay is based off of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. The movie is a movie within a movie, story within a story, a mystery within a mystery. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this prequel. Oh yeah, this Netflix prequel. I'm I'm a huge fan as well. I actually met Robert Town one time. I got it. Oh, at the University of Miami Film School. Oh really? He came and he uh, he was uh, promoting a film that he had just worked on with Tom Cruise called Without Limits, mm-hmm. the Steve Prefontaine story. Oh yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And okay. That was also a subplot in actually how they created Nike at the University of Oregon or something like that. Yeah. It was a very interesting film. And he was there and did it like a Q&A at the U. And mm. it was, that was interesting to, to, to hear him chat that day. Okay. I missed that one. You might have missed that one. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> I missed a, a really good one. Yeah. But yeah, I am excited about this prequel. Yeah. So. This is going to be exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the film Chinatown. Obviously, it's one of the, the great legendary cinematic classics in the canon. Yes. As you were the AFI top hundred whatever and so yeah I'm interested to see where they and the, I mean the film did get a sequel if you remember the two Jakes oh yeah uh, but I think this is going to take it in a whole new direction obviously David Fincher's work on it is going to be extraordinary I'm yeah sure. yeah one of my favorite favorite directors and we just talked about Fincher in our intro that's right yeah yeah, yeah we did so Fincher's going to be back hardcore with this when he's rolling the dice yeah you know more often than not you're going to get a 7 and 11 yeah you're going to be up there yeah it's going to be worth your time so a lot of great stuff going on yeah i'm yeah. excited yeah but we're talking about throwbacks mm. i'm excited about our next guest oh are we going to talk about that let's talk about it let's talk about them because we are talking about disney plus that's right when you open up the app What's one of the first things you see? On the home screen? Well, many offerings, but something that's been featured a lot is a film called Remember the Titans. Denzel Washington. Denzel. And a lot of superstars came from that film. Yeah, Ryan Gosling was in it, Kate Bosworth, very young. And yeah, they, uh, Ethan Suppley, you know, which yeah. is earlier on in his career. And it was definitely a star maker, that film, I think. The and writer the of writer. that film. Yes. Star. He's a star. That yeah, it made him a star as a screenwriter, essentially, right? A list screenwriter. Gregory Allen Howard. Gregory Allen Howard. Yes, Kevin, you nailed it. That's gonna be a fantastic interview. We can't bring wait to bring it to you next week. And he has a film out in theaters right now. That's right. Harriet. Harriet. Yeah. Harriet. Yes. And Harriet has been a big hit. Because it's, you know, critical. And also it's exceeded expectations at the box office. Mm. So it is one of those films, you know, we talk about films that are the big tentpole films, the comic book superhero sci-fi films dominating. But here you have a film about Harriet Tubman. Yeah. That is beating its box office numbers. Right. And I think that's why you got to give these unique stories, these voices a chance to be told because there's so many great stories even throughout our history. Yeah. That haven't been told, that haven't been given any attention, you know, and I understand, you know, women's empowerment and the Char- Charlie's Angels thing. But come on, if I had to choose a women's empowerment story, Harriet versus Charlie's Angels, we brute number 12. <laughs> come on, man. OK, I got one for you, though. Harriet Tubman with the CGI version of the real Harriet Tubman. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
imagine that's what they're going to do next. I'm getting chest pains. George Washington there as himself. Oh, God. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, and but I think eventually they're probably going to get there. Maybe not that far back, but from the point that we were able to audio visually record some of these historic figures, like I can imagine maybe Martin Luther King Jr., coming back in that capacity. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. For sure. And there's so many throughout our history that I think that that is going to be interesting again to see. Yeah, but listen to this. And this is Worldwide XR, mm-hmm. which is the intellectual property company. Right. Other celebrities, worldwide, other celebrities Worldwide XR will enable creators to bring back include actors such as Betty Davis, Burt Reynolds. Wow. Andre the Giant. Right. Lou Gehrig. Maya Angelou. Chuck Berry. I mean, that's insane. It's right here in the article. I know. I, I, I that's same. We were just talking about this. Like, and I made a mistake. I said Hollywood Reporter. It's right. uh, CM, CNBC. The article's ah, from CNBC. CNBC. Yeah, of course. But still, but still, I mean, just what what we're talking about, which was almost unfathomable even like ten years ago. Yeah. Is now like oh, it's, again, it's not a question of whether it's going to happen. It's when. See, Prashant. You knew it, and you didn't say it exactly. He had the, he had the inside track. <laughs> you got to get Prashant back. I think so. And I'd our listeners to... have to go back and listen to Prashant's interview. Yeah. No, I really think that that's, that's important, because if you go back, then you kind of understand the trajectory of where we're going today and how that was kind of fleshed out by him, you know, from a producer standpoint. You know, because you're always also thinking about budget. You know, can I afford the $30 million version of, uh, you know, Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks? Or... Is there a way around that where I can still feed the monster, but have it at a more economical price, I guess? <laughs> I mean, then when you're doing biopics, are you going to need the actors? You just bring back the real person. Right. And you give it the voice of, I guess, you know, an actor's voice interpretation, you know, for the scenes. Or that, an AI. Or an AI. You know, I'm, I'm sure eventually yeah, you'll be able to suck out the historical voice and a computer will be your voiceover artist, you know, delivering the performance with crescendos and emotion. I don't know. That's, we said it for we said it first at Screaming Miami. Yeah, but we got to be careful because you know it's and we said it first and, and you know we have a lot of fun because this is all entertainment. It's all either way. It's all for entertainment. It's all storytelling. But you know, there's a big controversy. Maybe we can end on this: is uh, deep fakes. You know what I'm talking about? No. This idea that you can use this same technology in a very real setting like oh right yeah that's you know right. what I'm yeah, saying yeah that's happening like if you that had is like happening Obama sitting down for an interview and words are coming out of his mouth that are not his yeah yeah I mean that's ha- not for Obama but that has happened for right. people like real people they're doing that so yeah. at what point you know is the ev- technology going to evolve to the point that you can actually do that and even if it turns out to be false the way that social media is now with this sort of instant backlash you know, to if that were to happen to you, yeah, how long would it take for you to get your side of the story out and still have your image being tarnished by something? That no, never, no, I'm getting a know? headache. The back and forth, the back and forth. It's and terrifying. You have, to, you have to hire the counter company, right. and then the counter company, the counter fake, the counter of the counter company, and Oof. yeah, well. You know, we're ahead of the curve here at Screen Heat Miami. I think we left our screen heaters with their heads spinning today. (laughs) I'm spinning. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll be back next week, which I'm sure is going to be a fantastic interview. Yeah. With a a legendary screenwriter that's done such amazing work. Yes, absolutely. Until then, keep it writing. I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm J.L. Martinez. And this was Screen Heat Miami.